Please remain standing as you're able. This is a story of David being chosen to be the new king. Samuel goes to David's house and sees all of David's brothers. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elihab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then six other brothers are paraded before Jesse and Samuel says to him, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, Thursday's the NBA draft, and as I looked at the Sports Illustrated on the Spurs championship this week, I couldn't help but notice that one of the guys in this picture is more than seven feet tall, and is very skilled. And as I thought about the Spurs' history, they were very fortunate that two of the best big people ever to play college basketball, when they came out, the Spurs were wise enough and fortunate enough to get them. There's something about height in basketball, as they say, you just can't teach seven feet. It's something you've got, or you don't. But then I realized, you know, there's four other guys in this picture, too. And none of them are seven feet tall. And it started to strike me on the eve of the NBA draft that there are other things besides height that matter in a basketball player. Just ask the two teams who, back in 1984, passed on Michael Jordan and chose taller players instead. There's more than just height to be measured when looking at a player. Now, I say all this because when we come to the Scripture this morning, we have come to the most important draft day in the history of Israel. Because a new king is about to be drafted because the old king Saul, who was the tallest guy around when he was picked, has disobeyed and he's fallen short of what God wants. So draft day arrives and Samuel shows up. And right away, Samuel decides he's going to go for height and experience. And so he looks at the oldest, the tallest son, Eliab, and he says, this must be the one. And God says to Samuel, this ain't the one. And God says, furthermore, you know, Samuel, I don't look at things the same way people do. They look at outward appearances, but I look on the heart. Six other more experienced, taller brothers pass in front of Samuel. They're all rejected as king. And finally, the youngest. The smallest is brought before him, and he is named king, and he is David. This morning I want to talk with you about the perils of judging things by outward appearances. If you'd like to follow along in your bulletin, there's a brief outline. It's in the form of an insert. And as we uh, get started, let me just give you this thesis. And the thesis is this. To have a heart like God, we need eyes like God. To have a heart like God, we need eyes like God. We need to be able to see other people the same way that God sees them. Several years ago, we learned to ask the question, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I wonder if our scripture this morning suggests that the prior step is WWJS. What would Jesus see when he looks at you or another person? And if we can start to get that sort of vision, we can begin to have the heart that God wants us to have. But we have a problem, 
And the problem is obvious here in the Scriptures. The problem is that we tend to focus on the external. Our problem is we focus on the external. We focus on appearances, just like Samuel did when he came to Jesse's house looking for the new king. Now, it seems to me that there are at least five disadvantages to focusing on appearances and focusing on externals, and and I'll list them for you. The first one is this. When you focus on appearances or externals, you need to know that they do not last. They do not last. If you are in a relationship with somebody right now because of the way they look, you need to be forewarned. They're not going to look like that forever. Some years ago, I went up to where my wife worked at University Hospital, and, and I took her something, and, and when I left, uh, one of the nurses said to my wife, well, Pam, you know, I was so surprised when I finally saw your husband. And my wife said, well, why is that? And they said, well, you know, he's bald. And she said, yeah? And she said, well, that was just surprising to me. And my wife said, well, he had hair when I married him. That's true. But it didn't, it didn't last. Things change. When you focus on appearances, the first disadvantage is it's not going to stay the same. Why would you buy a house just because of the outside paint job or a car? There's more to look at. And that leads to our second disadvantage is when you focus on appearances, they're not real. That's not really the way things are. That's not really who people are. Um, Audrey was so to the point with the kids about the rocks, the rocks that seemed so pedestrian that if you were crossing the road, uh, you would never pick them up. But when you pick them up and look inside, they have these amazing, uh, um, amazing things inside these geodes. The amazing uh, looks and, and figures are within them. Uh, what's outside isn't always what's real. Here's the third disadvantage. When you focus on appearances, when you focus only on externals with other people, you may miss out on the real value of another person. If you're going to judge them just by appearances, you may miss them. You may miss who really God is going to use. I remember this was uh, hit me so hard. When I went to school, graduate school, I had an internship. And I learned more from my mentor than I learned in three years of school. But I remember the first time I met him. When I came into his office, I showed him in my office, his office, I had to wait for him. He was outside and he came in. First thing I noticed about him was that he had a clerical collar on. I'd never seen a Methodist wear that. It looked like a Roman Catholic priest. And so he had a white collar, a black shirt. Then the next thing I noticed, his hands and arms were covered with black grease from finger almost up to his elbow. Turns out he'd been working on the church bus and he started to shake my hand and then he pulled it back and decided maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And I'm looking at him thinking, boy, this is going to be a long three years. But underneath the collar and black shirt was a soft and malleable heart. And above the collar and black shirt was a mind that was as brilliant as any I'd ever met. And I learned a great deal. But if I would have stopped with the outside, I would have never gotten there. I would have missed. I would have missed that. If you just judge on appearances, you miss what's real and you may miss the real value of another person. You probably heard the story many years ago. Ralph Ellison, with some help of a makeup artist, uh, was a, a white man who became, for all intents and purposes, black. And he went across the deep south and he chronicled his experiences of what it's like to be treated like a black man in the south. And this was his summary of all of his experiences. He said, P 
people treated me and looked at me as if I were invisible. Brilliant man, Ph.D., famous author, but nobody knew that because they only looked and made judgments on the out on the outside. You may miss the worth of a person. You may, this is the fourth disadvantage, miss your own value. That's pretty scary to me. When I look in the mirror and realize I don't look like the people on TV or in the movies, I may think less of myself. But the reality is that people in TV and the movies never look like us unless they're on Jerry Springer. I mean, the people that are, are, are on TV, there have been a thousand women tried out for that role. In the movie, a thousand men wanted to play that part. They're not normal looking at all. And if you make that your goal, how much time, energy, and money do we throw away going after a look that's not really us and it wouldn't really last? But we devalue ourselves. Remember we talked about this several weeks ago. We talked about resurrected bodies. And I pointed out the survey that said that the vast majority of women in North America would give away a year of their life to have what they considered the ideal figure, whatever that was. They, they would cut their life short by a year just to have that. I hope that's not true. I hope for you that you look in the mirror and you see things the way God does. You'll miss your own value. And then finally, and that's why I asterisk this one, you, if you focus on the externals, may very well miss out on God. You may miss out on the presence of God inside another person. They asked Mother Teresa one time, working among the dying, the lepers, the very poor, the infirmed in Calcutta, what do you see when you're there? And she made this response, I see Jesus in distressing disguise. Underneath the infirmity, underneath the diseased flesh, she saw Jesus. If you don't look underneath, you won't see him in another person. There's a, a parable Henry Nowen relates, and the, the, the uh, Hasidic parable, and it's about uh, an innocent young man on the run from uh, wicked authorities. He comes to a village and takes refuge. The authorities know he's there, and they come to the village and they say, if you don't turn over this man by dawn, we'll start killing people in your village one by one. So they go to the rabbi and they say, what do we do? What do we do? And the rabbi says, I'm going to need some time on this one. And so he goes in and opens up his Bible and the rabbi starts reading. And he comes across the verse where it says, it is better for one man to die than for many. He decides that's his answer and he goes to the authorities and betrays the whereabouts of this innocent man. He's handed over, they haul him off, they will kill him. The next morning after dawn, there's a great celebration. The village honors the rabbi for saving the village. But he doesn't feel much like celebrating and he goes to his house and then goes into his room and closes the door. An angel comes through the door and appears to him. And the angel said, what did you do? And he said, I turned over an innocent man to the enemy. Did you know, asked the angel, that you just turned over the Messiah, the Son of God? And he said, well, no. How could I have known that? The angel said, if instead of reading your Bible, you would have gone and met him and looked deeply into his eyes, you would have known that he was the Messiah. This parable always hits me pretty hard because I believe in reading the Bible, teaching it and finding biblical principles. But the fact of the matter is, if we never lift our head out of our Bibles to look deeply into the life of another human being, we will miss a lot of what God wants to do in our lives. 
The disadvantage of focusing on, ex- on externals is you are bound to miss what God is doing in other people. Now, if that's our problem, what's our solution? problem is focusing on the externals. The solution is looking then underneath the externals to the heart. We want to look underneath to the heart. And it seems to me three advantages jump out right away. The first one for the living of my life is this. If I learn to learn, look past the externals underneath, then I no longer have to keep up with the Joneses. The first advantage is I don't have to keep up with the Joneses. Whatever they have, I don't have to have. Whatever they drive, I don't have to drive. Whatever they wear, I don't wear. Whatever they look like, I don't need to have that look. Because none of it is going to last. And none of it is very important. And yet so much of us are on a drive to be like the people who are around us, to have what they have and do everything that they get to do. And it's not real. Arthur Schlesinger, who as a historian has chronicled all the presidencies of, of, of the last many administrations, also chronicles America. And they ask him for a description of the America and the time in which we live. And this is what he said. In America, we are in an era, he said, of inextinguishable discontent. Inextinguishable discontent. You scratch the surface of the average American and underneath they want more. They don't feel they have whatever they should have. How disappointing. Because the things they want are always the externals. So the first thing that happens to me is I get freed up from the Joneses. The second advantage is I might actually come to love the Joneses. If I quit focusing on what they're driving and what they're wearing and start being in relationship with them and seeing what's underneath, I may come to really appreciate them, understand them, and care for them. I can be freed from competing with them and I can be moved to instead empathizing with them and caring for them. If I can get free, the advantage is I can learn to love them. They did an experiment some years ago at a California university. Uh, they got a hold of some students that were in a class and they said, now look, when your professor is lecturing for the first half of the class, I want you to be as disinterested as you can be. Now, don't be rude, but make it obvious that you're not paying attention, that you're looking somewhere else. Your mind is on something else. And in a predetermined signal by one of the students on the front row, then I want you to switch and give your professor full attention, rapt attention, as if the professor was saying the things that would change your life for good and for the better, as if your professor had that answer to all of life's ills. Focus on him like that. So unknowing uh, about the experiment, the professor starts lecturing, and a few minutes in, he's struggling. As he looks around, his pace gets slower, his connections and transitions aren't as smooth, and he starts to labor through his material, then all of a sudden the signal's given, and shoulders straighten up, and then bodies start to lean forward, and eyes get focused. And the pace picks up. The transitions become smooth. The energy flows from the attention he receives. The way they responded and cared to him affected him. In the same way, if we can learn to care for and fix positive attention on our neighbors, who they are, not what they have, imagine the change that might come to them and come to our relationship final advantage, I think, of looking underneath to the heart is we may actually discover our own worth. We may actually discover our own worth. If we quit focusing on the externals of our own life, 
we may find out how really valuable and worthwhile we are. I mean, the fact of the matter is the NBA draft is Thursday night. And between now and then, I'm not going to grow a foot and a half. Between now and then, I'm not going to turn the clock back 30 years. What is there to value? I've got limitations physically. But I can look underneath and know that in my heart, there is ample room to grow. My character can grow by leaps and bounds. My integrity can go up sevenfold. I have potential and room. I can grow in ways that other people physically, they're restricted. But I'm not restricted when I can look on the inside. There's been a phrase that's helped me for years from Charles Williams. It goes like this, double vision. He says that we all need the vision to see people as they are. But we also need an equal vision to see them as they may yet become. He said that with people who knew Gandhi, that was his secret. He knew what you were like, but he also treated you as you might become. When we see that, we see the worth and value and potential in our own life. We can all become like Christ. We are all valuable. We have so much more growing and being that we can do. Well, how does this happen? Let me close by giving you three suggestions. If you want to start getting a vision like God, see people, see yourselves the way God sees you and sees others. Three steps for me. First one is solitude. You're going to have to turn off the TV for a while. You're going to have to put down the magazine. You're going to have to quit letting everyone else tell you what's real. So that between you and God, you can start to figure out what's real and what's really lasts and what really counts. I think it starts with a heavy dose of solitude. Just getting with yourself and getting God so you can get your bearings in this very confusing age. Second thing is I think you should begin uh, to move towards simplicity. Begin to simplify your life. The fact of the matter is if externals don't count, then why do we spend so much time and energy on our possessions? Begin to understand that in some ways your possessions are liabilities because everything you own, you've got to maintain. And pretty soon the possessions start to own you. Our own family this weekend had waited for a year to, uh, for the old phone contracts with different companies to, to expire. You know, so we could all get on the same new co- contract, but more importantly, could get new higher tech phones. Well, it seemed to make sense. My wife figured out that she saved money on the phone plan, though we more than gave it away in what we paid for the phones. But it's interesting to watch the high tech phones that can do everything from play music to cook your breakfast. It takes a long time and a lot of energy to master them. And I began to wonder last night whether we were mastering the phones or they were mastering us. Watch out for possessions. They're okay as servants. They become very terrible masters. Learn to value what money simply can't buy. My favorite story um, uh, from, on this is from John Ortberg, a pastor who won Father's Day. One of his daughters bought him a book that she went out to the bookstore, picked out herself, because she knew her daddy was interested in this subject. And she wrote him a note. She inscribed it in, in the middle. And so after the kids had gone to bed that night, he's sitting in the family room with his wife, and he's kind of looking at the inscription and looking at the table of concert, contents, looking back at the inscription and reading it again and looking thumbing through the book, and his wife looked over him and smiled, and she said, would you take a million dollars for that book? And he said, why, yes, I would. 
He said, I can always buy another one and get her to sign it again. Well, maybe. But the secret to life is, what are those things that we wouldn't take a million dollars for? What are those things that are too valuable for any price? Those are the things that need to begin to command our attention. So not only do we seek solitude and simplicity, the final thing I would suggest, and you've heard me say it before, it's the same song, 50th verse. You're going to have to slow your life down. You're just going to have to slow down because one of the reasons you and I focus on externals is because it's just easier to live our life that way when we're traveling at this high a pace. It's worth noting that Jesus walked everywhere. He didn't own a donkey. He borrowed one for the last week of his life for one day. Couldn't afford it. He walked everywhere, but that gave him great time to look beneath the surface to the heart. We're going to have to begin to slow our pace down. Rabbis taught in the days of Jesus that one of the reasons Moses was chosen to free the Hebrews from the Egyptians was that he was the only one who slowed down enough to look at the burning bush. Everyone else on that mountain went on by. Maybe so. Rabbis used to spend a great deal of time arguing about things that don't seem important to us, but they wanted so badly to live exactly by God's law that they would debate them. So one day there was a rabbi and his disciples, and they were debating this subject. How do we know when it's dawn? How do we know when the night is past and it's given way to day? So one of the, when the rabbi asked the questions, one of the disciples raised his hand and made this obje- uh, observation. He said, Master... Is it when, at a distance, we can tell the difference between a sheep and a dog? And the rabbi said flatly, no, it's not. Well, another disciple, disciples typically aren't timid, so they jumped in and said, well, is it when, at a distance, we can tell the difference between a fig tree and a vine? No, replied the rabbi flatly. Well, when is it then, they asked the rabbi, and this is what he said. When you can see the people around you, As brothers and sisters, then you have light. And if not, you're still living in darkness.